I was thinking, I, by the way, I, I, I really like your book. I was reading it uh, the, over the weekend and uh, I'm shocked you and I don't know each other because it seems like we've but run yeah, right? I'm really shocked. I, it feels like we've run in the same circles. I mean, I'm good. You know, I was in SoCal for a long time and did a little bit of damage here and there and, and good friends with everyone from, you know, Carasosa to Jeanette to Angel, to, you know, Alex Levy down in Del Mar and, and yeah, a bunch of people. I just can't believe we never crossed paths. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the last 15 years, it's been a whirlwind. I've been gone on the road, just traveling and it was really enjoyable. I liked it. I, I coached the coaches and geez, probably half the countries around the world. And uh, it was great, but I just really just, we were just ready to come home and stop, you know, be like, be human again. Yeah. I, I hear you. My wife and I, we uh, actually made the other move. I was grinding away in SoCal with some good players and traveling, but different than you, different capacity, orange bowl, fiesta bowl, winter, super nationals, stuff like that. Clay courts. Uh, and, and just grinding in SoCal. We just left about a year ago. I, I, really? I, yeah, you're one of the reasons I'm sorry I left because we should be we should be uh -huh. meeting in we should be meeting in person. But um, yeah, we we uh, we came out here to Colorado. I guess we'd had enough of uh, paradise and <laughs> paradise at six dollars a gallon. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Where are you in Colorado now? What part? Well, we're building a home up in the mountains, and right now we're, we're in West Denver. So we just started framing about a week and a half ago. So I think we got another three or four months to go before the house is finished. And then we're looking forward to living up there in the mountains. And I spent my whole life pretty wow. much on the coast. So I never really, uh, first Connecticut, then California. So I never really got into the mountains. But I have to say, it's like, uh, I tell people, it's like graduating college. I feel like I'm just starting all over. I'm making new friends and, and yeah. having a, I love it up here. I think it's a, a really, the mountains just, man, I can't believe I'm a mountain man. I was always a beach guy <laughs> and I just love it up here. Well, way to go. Yeah. I, uh, I have a pull towards mountains too. I don't know why, but I just, uh, I love going up there too. You get the same kind to me. I always had that same kind of, energy is being on the beach or being you know walking around with big trees up in a mountain somewhere yeah it's a little different i guess i'm i was a surfer so i i but uh, i was gonna say i missed that but i missed it my last year in california got so crowded you know costco selling those damn foam boards uh it quadrupled, yeah. <laughs> quadrupled the people in the water so i just got so pissed off i said i'm done with this sport and um, but the i guess out here in the mountains it just it feels so wide open, you know, yeah. I mean, just mountains yeah. and mountains and, and, and the air is a little thinner. I mean, the air is different to breathe here. It really is. Yeah. It, like we were training yesterday. I, I coach a good player out here, you know, solid 12 UTR guy, good player. And I mean, he'll be, he's already probably top 10 in the nation and 35s, but we want to be one. And we're practicing up there in the mountains at some courts that uh, at a country club where they're letting us play. Uh, they, they sort of invited us. It's really nice. It's a different kind of a workout. My, my guy said to me, he goes, man, I feel the air is thinner up here. He says, it's going to be awesome next week. We're playing the state open down in Denver. He said, yeah. I'm going to be so ready because the air is so much thinner up there. So it, yeah, it's just. Yeah. 
It's different. So let me introduce you really quickly. Uh, we just started chatting. Like I said, I kind of feel like I know you just because I should know you. Um, I know Peter Smith really well. You know, I hung out with him okay. quite a bit, quite a bit. Spent a lot of time with him, of course, because of Stevie Johnson and, and, you know, working with him in the juniors. I got to know um, I know him really well and did a few uh, exhibitions with Pete. And I know, you know, all these guys, cause I've seen your yeah. name all over the place, but anyway, you're living at the 45 right now. And I'm not sure if you know what that means, but in our world, it's a big deal living at the 45 and, uh, and I'm just uh, happy and, and uh, pleased as I can be to, to, to meet you for the first time on live podcast. I'm talking with Frank Giampaolo and, uh, He's uh, got a terrific book out. Just uh, someone had to do it. Someone had to do it right about the tennis parents. I mean, it was, and it's, it's an easy read. It's a fun read. And, um, you know, welcome, welcome to, uh, welcome to our world over here. And uh, there's lots of people I know will be watching this. So you know, well, say hi to yeah. everyone and introduce yourself as, as needed. Yeah. No, thanks so much. I, I, I appreciated it. So I'm finally with the legends. Thanks, Jeff, for, oh, for getting me on this thing. And <laughs> legend oh, as in old, as in old, maybe. <laughs> no, but we'll we'll have some fun. I'm sure we can uh, banter a bit and maybe even help some coaches and parents and even maybe even a few athletes. So, yeah, no, you're absolutely well. You know, it's funny. I I was reading your book. It's very different and read than uh, Dave. You know, Dave Smith. You must. Yeah. Sure. Anyway, Dave and I did a, a series of about eight podcasts uh, because, he, you know, we, we just thought it'd be a good idea. Sort of what you just said there. Maybe it'll help some coaches, some parents, some players. And, um, you know, he's written a nice couple of books himself. Oh, yeah. Know, different writing style. I will say I was I it was a pain in the ass, I thought at first, because I'm like, shit, I got Zoom call on Sunday. I'm coaching. I've got, you know, finals. I want to watch the finals of the U.S. Open and the semis. Right. And I had such a busy weekend. I said, ah, shit, I'll try to look at his book. It's an easy read. I thank you for not trying to speak above your audience. And, and, and thank you for not dumbing it down because um, I really enjoyed it. I've worked with a ton of kids, a ton. And man, their parents could use this. And I think coaches could really use your book. I got to tell you, um, a lot of people throw their books at me, ask me to write stuff on it. You didn't because you didn't know me, but I would have. I would have written a glowing <laughs> report because I really, I got to tell you, it really made me dig deep back to when I worked with Mike Query, you know, Sam's dad. Terrific tennis parent, by the way. Terrific. Then a completely different style with Steve Johnson Sr. Completely different style. God rest his soul. I liked Steve and I were friends, but you know, he was a much tougher and different kind of tennis parent than Mike was Mike and yeah. Chris. much different. Um, same with Foreman and Warren Wood. I mean, everyone's parents were a little different, but in some way you had a thin red line going down the, the book, who the best parents would, would be. And, and these guys had those traits. Yeah. And, wow. Uh, it's interesting that we really have had a parallel because three of the kids you mentioned, uh, I worked with three of those as well when they were kids. So they must have just banged around a little bit. And I mean, I remember Warren was a terrific kid. And, you know, of course, I, I was up at Sherwood Country Club managing that tennis facility when I met 
Sam when he was a young kid and we yep. worked for a few years together and yeah, but isn't it interesting? They all have different pathways. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Warren's parents were pretty, um, the mom, she was pretty into it. Kevin was too, actually, the dad. But they um, they kind of let Warren do their thing. And I'd say the same about Sam. But Steve, a whole different story with Steve. He was in there like stink on a monkey. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and that's not to put him down because he did some great things. I mean, look, he was a great coach himself, Steve. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and uh, strange circumstances how he died, though. You know, they still, you know, Foreman told me they still, after five, six years, no autopsy. They, they still don't know what it was. He just went to sleep and never woke up. Yeah. They think it's related to his heart, but they just don't know. Yeah, I bet. I, I suspect he wasn't the kind of guy that, cancel lessons to go to doctor's appointments he probably did vice versa right you know it's funny steve was really funny i would have thought he'd live decades beyond me i'm 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 not so good i mean we go to orange bowl we go to the hard courts now all those tournaments right because the boys played dubs together foreman and johnson played dubs together in the you know 14 16s 12s all those young groups and you know, I'm having dinner, uh, you know, and I'd have a beer or two. And no, not Steve. Boy, he just wouldn't have a beer. I mean, he was really straight-laced, uh, Steve Sr. Of course, Steve yeah. Jr. was. Steve Jr. was, too. But, uh, yeah, I don't know what it was. He, he just, you know, and we'd have lunch together every Monday. We'd have lunch together. And then we'd work with the boys Monday, Wednesday, Friday uh, for about three years over at the uh, Rancho San Clemente. Tennis and you know where that tennis is? Nice little club. Yeah. Lifetime bought it, unfortunately, because you know uh, they turned it. Oh, you know, I, ironically, I, I opened that club with Bob Lutz in the 90s. So I was the first director of that club for about 10 years. Really? So you worked, you worked with that uh, guy. Um, what was his name? Lloyd. Lloyd. That's it. Yes. Anyway, so that was a very interesting part. But then I just I went to I went back to work with Vic Braden after that as his agent and decided to travel with him in the the senior tour. If you remember back in the day, it was called the Nuveen Tour. And I do it was like Johan and McEnroe. And, you know, it was like the Globetrotters, really. It wasn't that serious. Yeah. No, no. They, they knew who was going to win before the match started. Yeah, I know. Yes. But it was a blast. And yeah, so we, we did. We we're running in the same circles and. That was a beautiful club up there for sure. Yeah, and it was a sweet little gem up there in the mountain uh, overlooking yeah. the beach. I mean, I was so happy when Stevie took it over after uh, Steve Johnson Sr. And then he did a great job. But yeah, that was a travesty in our industry to lose to lose him. So it was it was um, he was he was one of a kind. He was he was real old school, you know, and you know, it's funny. I, I use that word old school. So I'm reading your book, you know, I'm a little more than halfway through your book, which I have to give myself props for, because like I said, there's a bitch of a weekend to, to read and to find Not the time bad. to read. But and is I'll this the Tennis Parents Bible that you're? Yeah, the one that you sent okay. me. And I got to tell you, that word comes up a lot as I'm reading your book. And it's, it's uh, I think it's flattering personally, but old school, that came up in my mind a lot. Um, uh, talking about the coaches and the parents and, and dignity and respect and, 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 and things that 
you know, I think guys like you and I might see is just very, you know, duh, very simple, like, of course, you know, but, yeah. you know, we've lost so much of all this stuff today. I, I don't think, I don't know if parents and coaches have the kinds of talks. My dad used to call them father-son talks. Hey, we're going to have a father-son talk. And, and he, we talk about things like loyalty, um, uh, discipline, uh, appreciation. I just don't know if that exists that much anymore. And because and, and, your book is filled with it. And I'm like, well, these are real life lessons here. But I kept thinking, but this is really old school stuff. <laughs> well, I hope that uh, people that read some of the books find the connection that it is the uh, it's the predecessor to even preparing properly for tournaments and training properly that if they don't have wonderful life skills and character traits, they're not even going to train right. So getting results, forget about it, in my opinion. So that comes first. And that is kind of the parent's job description. A lot of times, you know, uneducated tennis parents, they're overstepping their boundaries a little bit. And they're trying to teach, you know, bend your knees on your low backhand volley. They're not leaving that stuff to the coach because they just, they're just not taught what their job description is once they learn okay my jobs is this x and o and the coaches are doing this side then it's it's kind of a, a beautiful harmony you know with the parent player coach but if parents are not educated they're usually well the analogy i would use they're usually the ship's anchor when they should be the ship's motor you know i read that i read that yeah was it motor or rudder i can't remember but yeah um, yeah, but you're right about the anchor part. I, 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 you know, it's funny. I'm reading your book and I'm thinking back to some of the players that I had. I won't mention some names now because these are negative stuff, but there was okay. one kid. He was number one in the boys. Uh, this is when they had boys tens. You may be too young to remember that, but they had boys 10 and unders in yeah. the section in the SoCal sectionals. This was, oh, 96, 97, right in there. I think they stopped doing 10 and unders around 2001 or 2002, but they had a 10 and unders. And I had a boy, he was number one in SoCal and uh, uh, he won the sectionals and the tens. He had a mother. I mean, every time he would miss, she'd slap her leg like that. And, um, this kid, I saw it in the tens. He started getting a twitch. By the time he was 12, he had a terrible twitch. By the time he was four, yeah, I mean, really. A, and it was constant. It was all the time. He would just twitch all the time. It was a habit that, she, that he ingrained from this habit of hers. And, of course, by the time he was second year of boys 14s, not only did a ranking drop, he quit and started playing lacrosse. Yeah. And, and so that was one of the terrible stories. And I can think of some others. I'm, I'm sure I can't tell you any stories that you haven't heard before, but that, that was one that stuck out in my mind. This kid had a real talent for tennis. I mean, he was something else, but he quit the game completely. And, and, and I think it destroyed him in a lot of ways. He had this tick, a twick, a tick. That's what it's called. Yeah. He it's sad. And, uh, with some of the studies, you, you know that 70% of the kids quit by the age 13. And the number one reason reported is tennis parents. And it's the same in every sport. So it's not just a, it's not a tennis issue. It's not, it's not sport related. It's just, uh, you know, the, the, the ego of the parents really that uh, they just need to be educated in every sport. 
It had to well, be a working yeah. class parent. So well, I think they call them stage mothers, you know, and other things, right? Yeah. Try to remember that. Yeah. Say, yeah. Helicopter parent or tiger mom or. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. It's common all over the world, right? Well, I think part of it. And the, and the other thing that kept striking me also was you have to be a good person to be a good coach. You have to be a good person to be a good parent. And, and that is an issue in itself, because how do you deal with a parent or a coach even that's not a good person. I had some of my kids, I remember Foreman and Karen, his sister, Karen, she was a good player. They went to a, a, a clinic or a workout somewhere. Cause I would always send them out. I was more of a private guy, even though I did a lot of big workouts in the early two thousands. I don't know. I was making more money doing privates or something. And I, I, I really enjoyed the privates more. And I don't know yeah. if you're familiar with my boards, those things that swivel and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's right. So I, yeah. So anyway, I was more interested in technical stuff. I really went from being a hardcore everything coach, you know, trying to study nutrition and everything. I said, now I'm going to just lock in on technical. So I'd send my kids out to these clinics, you know, whether it was Barnes Center or La Costa or wherever, wherever the new clinic was, you'd have to try it <laughs> out. Right. Yeah. Well, my two, two of my kids went and they came back to me and they said, you know, Jack, before the workout, we were just, you know, sort of stretching and fumbling around and the coach had us all there. He gives us a lecture on when is a good time to cheat. And I was just like, I was appalled. I will not mention the coach's name. You probably know him. And uh, I was just shocked. I just said, well, you can forget that. That's bullshit. You can just forget it. And, you know, Foreman had a bad habit of playing serves that were this far out. He played them in. In fact, you know what? Most of the great players did that. Sam did it. Um, Stevie, to some degree, not as much as the others. Warren was terrible. And I yeah. said, Warren, you know, this is a gold ball tournament. What the hell are you doing? He goes, man, I just, you know, I got sick. The guy double faulted three times in like four games. And I just wanted to hit the ball. I said, get <laughs> out of your mind. You know, so, I mean, the best players – they really, at least my best players didn't cheat, but I couldn't believe that a coach was literally coaching them on when is a good time to cheat and how to cover the ball with your feet and your body. So they can't tell where it hit the line on. A, and I was just like, besides myself, this was back in 2002, 2003, but have you ever heard, have you ever heard of that? Well, yeah. In, in, in different countries, they, uh, I've heard the coaches and players talk about, uh, you know, the, the athletes in Spain would say, our coach tells us to cheat in the first couple of games just to see if the opponent is confrontational enough. Are they going to come up and confront me on the issue or not? And if they're not, then we can cheat later on when we need it. That was interesting, I thought. I, I did get, you know, I moved to California right from Ohio State in 85, and I went straight to the Vic Braden Tennis College to work. But I, I got to meet Jack Kramer a bunch. And I remember he said back in the 1930s, there was about six bad calls per match. Wow, so, really? Yeah. When there was not that much money in it. Yeah. But, but I got to be honest, kind of like you, I, I'm more concerned about when our, our athletes hook themselves. You know, it's, they have an ad in and they play a ball that's four inches out and then they lose the point. Now it's back to deuce and they cheat themselves out of the game because they're not making the call. So it sure gets interesting with that whole side of it. And to me, it's always about 
it's not the drama, but it's how they handle the drama. And uh, with kids, I give the analogy of a, like if a rattlesnake bites them, is it the, is it the bite that kills them or the venom coursing through their veins for the next five hours? And the kid goes, well, no, it's the venom. And then you're like, well, yeah, that's the same thing with cheating. They might get one point, but if you're still stressing about it and you're still thinking about it, you could lose games if you're not handling it. So I guess that's a big part of the mental emotional education is presetting protocols. How do they handle hooking and cheating and people that, you know, flip the score or in different countries, they're great at accusing you of cheating. So, you know, you, you we, our player would be at 31. Yeah. And the foreigner would throw their racket down. You know, it's 3-3. Three, three. What are you talking about? And oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So it gets, you know, it gets all exciting. But, uh, you know, to me, most of the time, it's control what you can control. And when I have conversations with most parents and players, especially if we're doing match play video analysis, they do seem to be, you know, cheated at it two or three points. But then I would remind them, you know, what about the 40 unforced errors you made in the match? Right. Maybe you can think about controlling that and you don't have to worry so much about the two or three, you know? Well, I think for me, you're right. You're right. I think for me, it's more about, I think about a certain kids that really had beautiful games and they were beautiful kids. You know, they weren't tough. They weren't tough, but they were sweet, good yeah. kids. And the cheating chased them out of the game. And that kind yeah. of bother, that kind of bothers me. I think that's what bothers me the most about it. Um, not at the highest levels, because they can handle it. I mean, Foreman, we went, I think it was at the hard courts in the quarterfinals. Oh, my God. I thought Steve was a big guy. I thought he was going to jack this guy up. It was, you know, he cheated him so bad. He says, if you friggin cheat one more time i'm gonna kick your ass i mean uh, and, and a lot of players could do i know alex did it when we played dubs you know uh levy down in um del mar okay yeah 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 nice player nice great guy anyway he was a tough tough hombre when it came to that so at the high levels i don't think it really matters i just don't like the way it chases kind kids kind sweet kids yeah. out of the game because they could be enjoying the game their whole life, but it, but they have a bad taste in their mouth from, let's yes. say, the 12, 12 and unders. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a good point. And, yeah, I find that a lot of the athletes, it's nature and nurture. You know what I mean? Like some kids are born natural born warriors and they are fine fighting. Some have to be nurtured. Like maybe they come from a family with siblings and they have to fight for the last slice of pizza or the last. Yeah the remote control or whatever, they're used to fighting. But other kids are born, you know, they're natural born warriors. They worry about everything. And uh, some kids are just wired like that, you know, and they're driving to the tournament site and they're already worried about, you know, the, the wind blowing at 18 miles an hour and the sun angle and there's a shadow sure. on the court. And, you know, they can pick a million things to worry about. And so kids are just wired differently. And that's, I guess, part of our, our job as coaches is to, you know, teach both sides, teach the hardware and the software, how to handle anxieties like that. And yeah, yeah, I know. I, I guess you tell, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it's, it sure is interesting at the higher levels because 
I find myself nowadays teaching more of the software, like the mental and the emotional. A lot of the kids that I'm working with nowadays, I'm doing this, um, there's a new SCTA high performance group called Team SoCal. They're doing again this year, but it's uh, Paul Anacone and I are doing it starting January. We've been doing it every, every month, a couple times a month. And we're just working on the software side, but it's sure is interesting. Kids are just wired a little bit different and we're going to, it's our job to get into their world and figure out how they tick and how they handle these issues. And, but, um, yeah, I, I like the way you put that. I like the way you put that in the book is don't have the athlete try to get into your world. You and the coach have to get into their world. And, and, and that was something that struck me pretty nicely. I thought that's, that's good thinking because kids are different, you know, very different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's a big part and you, you see it in different countries, even like, for example, when I was working at an academy in Barcelona, we were doing some mental, emotional stuff and, you know, they, they teach what they call the Spanish method, right? You know, you've heard I of know it. Right? Well, I worked over at Emilio's in Barcelona for a uh, Okay. A so, you know, they mandatory, they got to stay 15, 20 feet behind the baseline, get 30 right. walls in time. And my and point was, teach, and then the Spanish way, right? I don't know when you were there, but I was there. Let's see. I was over there in uh, 2006, I think. It was all this, you know, you lift that front. Foot oh, yeah. Up. That was a big deal. That's what I remember about it. I met Jordi Aresti. I met Emilio. And they were all teaching to lift your foot up. Yeah. But, man, you know, I... I I think it's terrific. People have systems. I think it's it's important for them. But I, to me, it's more of a customized situation. Like, what if players like Sampras or Williams sisters, what if they were forced to stay 15 feet behind the baseline and get 30 balls in? They may have quit the sport. We may not. You're right. I mean, Serena sure. now, after that last tournament, if she gets any close inside and more inside the baseline, she, you know, she'll be short hopping everything. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, it's, you know, it's a laugh a minute out there, right? Yeah, I guess it is. I guess it is. Like I said, uh, it really, it really evoked your book. I don't know. I guess the purpose really is to help people and grow the game and all that stuff. But for me, it just evoked some uh, old memories. I mean, there were some strange, some strange things that happened on my court, you know, not just the mothers who come out on their high heels and walk out on the court to say something to their daughter, you know, not that. And their daughter <laughs> did end up being in the top 50 in the world. So I can't say maybe she was right. But then I had one, I had one fellow, his son, he had two boys and his son was an older one. He won the national clay courts, boys, 14s, good player. And he had a little brother and I was teaching him and he was only seven years old. The older brother was 11. And it, I hadn't thought about this in decades until I read your book, but the father comes out a uh, middle Eastern guy, tough, tough, middle Eastern guy and wealthy, very wealthy. And he, and his son's goofing around. We're having fun. He's seven. And I, I try to keep it light. We're on the swivels, you know? So I think he hit a ball and he spun around or something, which I like. Sam used to do that. I, I think it's fun when the kids realize, uh, oh, you know, I've got so much balance. I can hit the ball and spin around and stick the landing. So I was smiling. 
and it brought up this memory and I completely blocked it out because it was so disturbing. Um, so disturbing. The father comes out and yells at the kid. The kid starts crying. Don't, he says, repeat after me. He says, you're wasting the coach's time. And I was like, Jesus, this is a little overkill. I had no idea how overkill it was. Then he says, <laughs> repeat after me. Now, this is to a seven-year-old. Time is money. Money is power. Power is everything. Repeat that. The kid says, I don't want to. He says, <laughs> you repeat it. He made him repeat that three times. Tears rolling down the kid's face. I'm humiliated. I'm mortified. I don't know what to do because, you know, you can't just say to the father, what the hell is the matter with you? Yeah. Which is what I wanted to say. Right, that's, right, where right. I was, that's where I was getting to about 15 minutes ago. You know, it starts with being a good person. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if just reading your book will be enough to make someone a good person, you know? <laughs> it, it's yeah. only going to ring true with people that are, have a conscience, you know? Yeah, that's exactly right. But the, the good news is the only people that will pick up the book are the ones that have, you know, the, the conscious and the, the, the people that are more of that, you know, that type A personality, they're not going to read a book. They already know it all. You know what I mean? So well, you're probably right about that. I just kind of figured, you know what, we're going to I'm going to help people that are seeking out the help. And the people that need the help the most probably are not going to be seeking out help. That's that's kind of what I found, but, but if we can help the, you know, the masses, that's great. And, uh, anyway, that's, that was the whole concept of that one. That first, the first edition came out in, I think, 19, maybe 1998, 99. And then the, the second edition, which you have, I think came in a couple of years ago. And yeah, that's uh, the one I have. Okay. So now we're just finishing the, the psychology of tennis parenting, which goes even a little bit deeper into the actual job descriptions and the, uh, the conversations that parents should be having with their athletes and how they should be involved and what are their roles in this whole process. And uh, so look, I think it's, it's, it's a great time right now to be doing this. There's a, there's a lot of openness to the software side. Um, like I, I think I even remember watching the, the ladies use open finals a couple of days ago and they did an, you know, the interview off court interview and, and you know, the, the top gal says that she's been with her sports psychologist since she was 12 years old. And I think that's meaningful for athletes to hear and parents to hear that it, it doesn't mean that your child is broken if they want to work on the mental or the emotional. Um, you know, the, to me, the mental is more of the X's and O's of strategies, tactics, knowing who you are, what your strengths are, how to open up patterns and run patterns to expose your strengths. That to me, that's always more of the mental game. Um, score management, opponent profiling, and that stuff. But then the emotional side to me was always performance anxiety, which is, you know, the, the fear, nervousness, tanking, panicking, choking, closing out leads, all the stuff that, you know, we've been hearing forever. And so people are getting more into it. They're buying into that now. 
So well, I I, I think uh, you've had some dramatic uh, instances in the last couple of years. I mean, my first thought is Osaka. I mean, here's a player that we all thought would be okay. She's just going to roll through the rest of these girls. She has great strokes, and she's she's pretty heady out there. But then all of a sudden, of all players, I was so surprised when I first read, oh, she's not playing this tournament because, and, and she, you know, the stress is too much for her. And I was like, whoa, yeah. you know, I mean, it was a big surprise, actually, for me um, yeah. to see yeah. that, because I'm so used to Sampras and all these guys, and you never really heard about that. Um, and, and there's a lot of talk, I guess, these days about openness and and everything from inclusivity and all this. And some of it's too much for me, to be honest with you. Some of it's just too much. I'm like, come on. But, but, but then again, so a lot of it's real. I know I had a lot of stress. Um, you know, one of the reasons I was so happy when the NCAAs ended for me, I was kind of relieved. I'm like, Oh, fuck, the pressure's off. I've been having this pressure since the 12 and unders. Right. And, and yeah. And I thought, shit, now I'm just going to coach and relax and let those guys have the pressure for the next 10 years. Cause it was pretty stressful trying to please your parents, trying to not embarrass yourself, trying to make sure, you know, that the girls in college like you, you know what I mean? There was just so yeah. much so to make sure your coach doesn't drop you from three on the team to six on the team. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. There's pressure, there's pressure all the time. And so I think a lot of players, I notice a lot of players will quit. In fact, most of the players that stay on and play the 35s and 45s, they're the ones that started late. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. the ones who started in the boys' 10s and stuff like that, they're, they're, they're just happy to be done with it. Yeah. I've seen that too, for sure. Well, my, my daughter, just from a tenant parent side, she hasn't picked up her racket since she finished playing at USC. So that's been a decade. So, and she grew so you know, up with the, all the kids, you know, with Stevie and those guys. She, it was Sarah Fansler was my stepdaughter, and she. Uh, I've heard that know, name. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, she was number one in the nation and kind of played the U.S. Open by 15, and she got enough. She, she was satisfied. She was, she doesn't need to play adult ladies league, such her point of view now. So maybe. Maybe later in her 30s or 40s, maybe she'll pick up the game again. But, you know, I think if you have 10,000 hours in, you deserve a little break, you know? Yeah, I agree. What is she, is she in tennis still? No, no. But a lot of the life skills, though, I'm, she uh, she manages, um, it's, a, it's a promotional company. But, you know, things like um, just perseverance and resiliency, she... She told me that she's going to call for, here's a good example of life skills really help after tennis. But uh, there was an insurance company, a nationwide company, and she looked up and found the owner of the company. She goes, I'm going to call them every week until they buy our products. And she called them every week, every week. So three months later, they end up buying the product. And she goes, that's just, it's from tennis. It's that no quit you know, resiliency and perseverance that she learned from playing a sport. And so I think that's really why parents need to know they're not paying for tennis. They're not paying for the game of tennis. They're paying for the life skills that, you know, the child is going to get up at six in the morning and work out before school. 
that's what they're paying for, right? The, the ability to get back up and close out a match when they just tank the second set. Right. That's what they're paying for. All these life skills and character traits and maybe even the moral compass when they have this urge, this twinkling to cheat or to cheat back, retaliation hooking, but now they have the moral compass and they're they're not going to cheat. They're going to do it. They're going to do win. They're going to win legit. And all these life skills that we want the kids to have in college and beyond, you know, they're uh, they're found in sports. And I don't think it's fair to say that tennis teaches life skills. I think it exposes life skills and it exposes bad life skills. And so I think that happens even more so that you know, kids lose in a tournament match and you see they don't have time management. They don't have their organizational skills intact to prepare for pressure properly. And so they see all these life skills that are not quite ready for prime time. And, and that's what I love about tennis. It teaches that side. Um, if the parents are mature enough to identify it, you know. Yeah, you know, it's funny, um, gosh, you're talking really uh, brings up some stuff. My, and it's mm -hmm. not just you, it's not just the player, it's the perception of the play of the athlete. Um, yeah. My dad always said, I want you to be a beautiful tennis player. Or he says, if you're a beautiful tennis player or a beautiful golfer, he says, forget the other sports. He says, I'm talking about, this is when I was a kid. He says, I'm talking about yeah. business, son. If you're a beautiful tennis player or a beautiful golfer, People will think, this is what he always said, people will think you're better than you are. Uh, and I always, I always remembered that. And I said, well, that is interesting. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, let's face it. You look at a guy oh. like Federer and you think he's just got to be the greatest human being on the earth because who could play that beautifully and be an asshole? I mean, you just couldn't, you couldn't do it. The guy is yeah. just, he, he really is poetry in motion you know, and, and there must be something special about him other than the way he plays tennis. And, um, and, and then, so I always remembered, you know, people will think you're better than you are. And then it hit me once when I was about 26, I, I, I was kind of sick of teach coaching right then. And plus I had hurt my arm. It was really sore and still using small headed. Uh, I, I wasn't going to switch to the Prince. I was like, screw that. It's a fad. <laughs> you know, big <laughs> so I was yeah. sticking with it. I was using some piece of crap. I was using snoured or something because I got like 20, 20 a year. You needed 20 a year because they broke like popsicle sticks. And my arm was sore. And I said, you know, I got to try something else. So I applied to AT&T of all places. Big corporation didn't even own a suit. I had to borrow my roommate's suit and shoes. I didn't own a pair of shoes. And uh, so I borrowed all my roommate's stuff and I went there and there were guys with beautiful little cross pens in their pocket and they were dressed to the nines. And I thought, there's no way I'll ever get this job. So because there were 350 applicants for two positions. And this was back in the 19, you know, 80s. And uh, that's, I am old, man. I am old. You're a young man next to me. I can see that already. Uh, but but so this guy, Charlie was my boss and I got the job. I was blown away and I mean, literally blown away. Cause I told my roommate when I got home, I said, dude, there's not a chance in hell I'm getting this job, not a chance in a million. And so I walked into my boss's office the very first morning, nine o'clock in the morning. And I looked at him and I said, you know, Mr. Button, he goes, no, call me Charlie. Okay. I got to ask you something. 
why? Why in the world did you hire me? That's what I said. I said, I, I'm here now. I'm on salary. I'm feeling good. But you got to tell me, why did you hire me? He goes, on your resume, it said you played for University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He says, I went to Chapel Hill. He said, I used to watch the, he said, I used to watch the tennis players in amazement and just go, how could they perform like that all the time and not miss and, and under big pressure, pass the guy or hit a big serve. He said, I was in awe of the tennis players at my school. We were seven in the nation. And he said, that's why I hired you. So that kind of proved my father's point. Yeah, it did. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. yeah it's, it's a so, beautiful um, yeah. Yeah, it really is. So what do you think about pickleball? <laughs> well, you know, I, honestly, I haven't played it yet. I uh, I did a lot of work in Wichita the last few years. And uh, some of the ex-tennis players from the tennis team at Wichita State, you know, the Shockers, they're the top pickleball players now on the tour, Lucy and Jay and and Matt. And it's, it's interesting that you know, they're doing well. They're making a terrific living traveling and playing pickleball. But uh, I'm just curious to see how it's going to affect um, the chiropractor's business and from all the bending and the shots in the kitchen and the knees. I mean, I do get it that it's a game that the masses can play. Tennis yeah. is a little more difficult. I, I get that. You know, the smaller court. And it's very social. I mean, I, to me, it kind of reminds me of what tennis was like when I was a little kid and the tennis boom, you know, and you'd go to a court or a club and you couldn't even you couldn't even get on a court. And so, I mean, I don't mind it. I think it's going to it's going to it's going to help tennis. I think tennis it's already showing that tennis participation is actually up. So is that right? Yeah, so tennis is up with pickleball. They're both they're both rising, but the only issue is the courts, right? That the pickle, in my opinion, the pickleball athletes and the pickleball owners now should have their own pickleball facilities and not encroach on the tennis courts. But you know, that's yeah, not you, my... mu you, you you must know about the San Diego issues. I've been reading about it. Um, big. I mean, they're they're in fisticuffs down there. I've heard. Really? Um, that's what I've heard. I've heard at some clubs where they're putting the pickleball and this and that. I don't know. I guess my only point about pickleball is I think it's fine for people to be outside. It kind of, I kind of relate it to surfing. I used to surf when I was in so, you know, until a year ago when I moved. And, you know, people go to your boogie board. I go, well, I can boogie board, but if you surf, why would you boogie board? Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I feel about tennis. I mean, if you have it a nice ball, why would you play pickleball? And I don't know. The only thing I can think of is what we were talking about earlier about when you finish college tennis and all the guys quit. Yeah. Uh, I think pickleball, I hate to say it because it's my, it's my phrase these days, but it's kind of for quitters because yeah. you don't really put your heart on the line. I, I can tell you tennis, every time you step out to play a match, it's almost like a prize fight. Every time you step on the court, you face possible humiliation you, i mean you know so many bad things can happen to you that day and you know, i don't feel it's that way in pickleball i don't really feel you know the racket's not three feet away from your hand 
So, you yeah, know, it's right. You know, so the, the, there's really no chance of facing that humiliation. There's no chance of having an unbelievably bad day. I mean, you know, um, so to me, I think it takes your heart off the line. With yeah. tennis, your heart, your heart is always on the line in tennis. Yeah. Well, it just seems a lot more social, but uh, I'm sure at the higher levels, it gets pretty physical. But uh, yeah. I don't know but if your still, book I mean, is. It's a drinking game. I mean, it's. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> you no, know, it's like golf. I mean, you you can play with a cigar and a cocktail, and you're fine. You know what I mean? And <laughs> anyway, that's what I see like around Newport is the bar is very crowded at pickleball, you know, events. So well, that's a good point. You're right. It is social first. I would say it's social first at least at that certain level, a club level. Yeah, but I mean, it's probably going to trickle down. And I haven't seen like junior clinics and things like that or pickleball academies yet, but <laughs> I'm sure it's coming. Oh, There's a lot of, you know, there are a lot of tennis pros that are, uh, they're loyal to the money they make. They're not really loyal to the game of tennis. So, they're all teaching pickleball. They're all getting certified in pickleball coaching. And that's, and that's fine. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the way for a lot of, even a lot of country clubs, right? They want the tennis pros to be able to teach both. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Cause you know, they want members. Right. So. No, I, I, I haven't gone down that road yet. I played once over at Bobby Riggs uh, where it's really big. Okay. right now. I played three sets and, it was okay, but it, it certainly wouldn't take, I mean, I never, let's put it this way. I never really wanted to play again. Uh, oh, okay. You know, I think it's a good way to bring people together. And like you said, it's drinking, it's a drinking game. Like my neighbors here, I can't imagine I could ask my pals who are my neighbors to go hit some tennis balls, but I could imagine asking them to go play some pickleball. We'd probably, you can always have an okay time. You can't have an okay time in tennis. If you have one week link, I mean, even in doubles one week link, all of a sudden, it's not much fun anymore. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's uh, true. Yeah. So t tell me just a little bit more about, uh, now you have another book out, or is that the only one, The Tennis Parent Bible? No, I have uh, about 10 books out. That's what I thought. Uh, yeah, there's a lot. And I think six of them became number one bestseller. So I was, I'm pretty lucky in the fact that I don't know, like you said, if it's a writing style or the topics, but um, yeah, so in racket sports, they're they're doing well. I, I wrote for Human Kinetics, if you remember that book published. I do remember it well. And yeah, so Championship Tennis was the their, I think they said it was their best-selling tennis book they've ever had. And, and, uh, and, and that's a book that's kind of based on the whole game approach where there's a lot of stroke mechanical topics in it and athleticism and not just mental and emotional but but most of the books are really based on mental and emotional some are for coaches like uh, the soft science of tennis is based on coaching the game and why personality profiles matter and how we would adapt our teaching style to fit different personalities and how different people are wired differently see the game differently and even how different brain types play the game differently. Because some people are maybe are more 
patient, some are impatient, some are very intuitive and they want to just try it first and think about it later. Some are more sensates, and that's a certain personality profile that wants all the facts before they make a decision. And that athlete is taught a little bit different than an intuitive player if they want all the info. Uh, there's judges and perceivers. And when, when we talk about the idea of Myers Briggs type indicators, and so you know that a good example of athletes that are more of a perceiver brain type, these are people that their brain is not found in the here and now. They're not paying attention to what we're talking about. Their brain is already in the future. They're already thinking about what's what's for lunch. Where's my meeting next or my homework next? So you see you see perceivers all the time. They get up five two in a match. They're all of a sudden now thinking about where's the trophy going to go in my room? What's my UTR going to go to? What are my parents going to say? What are my friends going to say when I beat this kid? And now they're so involved into the into the outcome. What if future thoughts? They blow the lead and yeah, they do it five, all. The it's time. five all. Sure, it's five all. Five, yeah. And now all of a sudden they got to get their head back into the here and now, the present, instead of being future oriented. And uh, so anyway, there are certain people we can just do personality profiling and, and we can tell who's going to have trouble with what. And so to me, it's really interesting. Like another good example might be there's thinkers or feelers in the world of personality profiling. Thinkers impersonalize situations. Feelers are very in tune to the harmony of the group and they want to be friends with everybody. People that are really feelers they have a boatload of trouble with gamesmanship especially if the opponent accuses them of cheating boy they're they're gone they're just toast so if we know how they're wired we know the future problems that are going to come down the pike you know um so that's soft science that's pretty interesting book that was a one of the one of the best-selling books and uh you know i write for the ptr and do a lot with the USPTA both and and now with the USTA. So they're all backing these things and they're getting behind it. And anyway, we're trying to help teach the parents about how, you know, kids are wired. And so yeah. if anybody's interested in that, any listeners, just go, just Google it. Google Myers-Briggs type indicator. And Myers and Briggs were a mother-daughter duo that studied the psychology of Carl Jung, right? But Myers and Briggs are not licensed psychologists. They wrote the most important uh, indicator, type indicator, probably in the history of psychology. And they're not, they're not even psychologists, but um, but they studied the work and they came up with this Myers Briggs type indicator. <clears throat> you can go online, just take a free course and take a free quiz. It takes maybe ten minutes. And now all of a sudden you start to read and you realize you're wired a certain way. Like there's a four letter acronym. Like maybe you're more of an extrovert and you like being around people. You get energy by being around people. And maybe you're more intuitive. You, you like to go with your gut instincts and maybe you're a thinker. Or maybe you're a, a judger. A judger is a kind of person that rules and laws really apply. And they're very organized. They're the kind that make lists. Like uh, 
I was coaching this kid in the Midwest. The dad's a real, a good accountant, tr tremendous accountant, but a judger. And after every match, he would give his son his list. Here's the 15 things you're still doing wrong. Every match. And you can imagine that the kid does anything he can not to play a tournament because he's just going to be sure. handed a list, right? And uh, so anyway, there's a lot of different personality profiles, but to me, the thing that was super important in my life was when I talked about this, this is something that we did with Vic Braden back 20, 30 years ago, but 25 years ago, I talked to my father about personality profiling. Now, get this, he's more of a introvert. He's more of a loner. He likes being alone. He likes to have a lot of quiet time. Introvert, I'm more extrovert. He's more sensei. He wants all the facts. I'm more of an intuitive guy. He's more of a thinker. I'm more of a feeler. He's more of a judger. I'm more of a perceiver. So we're wired opposite. Now I'm in my thirties. And for the first time in my life, he says, you know, I, I got to apologize. I, I raised you wrong. I tried to make you be like me and you're, you're, you're not wired like me. You don't, no wonder why we didn't see the world the same. And, and so first time in my thirties, he tells me he loves me. And wow. he's fine. Yeah. And so it was really meaningful for families to, it, it stops a lot of wars because the parents are like, they're not doing it right. They're not doing it my way. They're not doing it correctly. And then they realize, man, they realize that the kid's not wired like you and they solve yeah. problems differently. Of course, my first thought goes to Andre. Um, you know, he had some of those issues, you know, and, uh, and I know yeah. Ruta and his sister and, and the whole family, you know, because yeah. of, uh, because the dad, I, I remember in the boys 14, some tournament in SoCal, I think, I can't remember if my boy beat him or lost to him, but I just remember they were leaving the tournament. The father, um, you know, he was a prize fighter and tough guy. He, um, Andre didn't win that tournament. He lost in the finals, but he played an age group up, you know, the usual, he was like 11. He played in the 14s. And uh, the father, I watched him as they were walking out of the trophy. He says, you lost this tournament. He took his trophy, ripped it from him, threw it in the trash, and they walked out. And that really weighed on me. I was like, wow, shit, I've never seen anything like that. And um, I mean, I, I, you know, and, and I, you know, Andre ran away from camp and, you know, Andre had tons of problems, uh, yeah. drugs and everything else, because maybe it's because of exactly what you say. He was brought up uh, really uh, against his grain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I was at a conference with, with Nick Boletari and he said, he goes, well, all I really did with Agassi was like, I just kept him in a jail. Yeah. yeah. That was his point. And, but I, I mean, uh, look at the incredible person Andre Agassi came, he, he, he became and everything he's doing for the world is just amazing. And yeah. And he married a, a fantastic wife. Probably, you know, yeah. Didn't he? He's a, he's a feeler. He's, you know, and, and more of a perceiver, but didn't he lose his first two Grand Slam finals to like Courier, who he, you know, beat most of the juniors and he was supposed to win, I think, but it, he was too overwhelmed by. The, yeah, he the, lost to Courier and Sampras, I think, in his first two. Okay. 
I think so. And then, and then I think, you know, so it's not like we haven't had these issues through the years. Like I said, Osaka comes to mind now, but now yeah. that I think about it, what about Mary Pierce? Remember yeah. her? I mean, yeah. probably a very similar situation. I don't really know it that well. I just know that she banned her dad or from coming to the tournaments or something weird like that. It was a very yeah. weird time. Um, yeah, that stuff still goes on. And, and you know, obviously when, at the, the top major leagues, we see it. But boy, that, you know, in the minor leagues, it sure, it sure is evident, right? The ITFs, that kind of thing. And yep. one of the issues that I think is important because people are listening to this, that just because you might be an introvert or an extrovert, it doesn't mean you're 100% one way or the other. You might be 49%, 51%. And, and people that are well-balanced, I think, are probably the, the most well-suited for, for competition. But uh, we all have uh, a dominant side. And it's a little bit like, if you guys think about people that are listening, if you think about batting in baseball, maybe you're dominant right-handed, your auxiliary side is you can bat lefty, but it's not quite as good. Or, or all of us as tennis players, maybe we can all serve and play right, right-handed and we're, you know, whatever, we're a UTR nine or 10. But we can actually, we can play left-handed, but it's not that great. That's our auxiliary side. It doesn't mean you can't be the other side, but we're usually, we usually do have a dominant choice and we're, we're wired with that from birth. It's a, it's a genetic predisposition, you know? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I don't know if one really relates to the other, but I've, for 30, 40 years, I, I was, you know, remember, I'm from the 60s. I, I'm a little older than you, so I'm, I'm sort of brought up in that hippie era, you know, everything from the inner game of tennis to oh, yeah. uh, remembering, uh, remembering uh, Rod Laver and John Alexander. Those guys would have a pint of Fosters before they played. It was a different world back then. Yes. But I remember reading a book called The Right Side of the Brain and um, and then another one called The Artist's Way. Uh, I don't know if you remember those. And then another one Dick Gould had me read called Psycho-Cybernetics. Oh, uh, yeah. And all those books really weighed on me. I, I know in my 20s, early 20s, when I started coaching, I had never done it, but I had all my players, still do, all my players play lefty. Yeah. Uh, and we can all play set. We can, I mean, I can serve, we can all serve lefty. We can play lefty. I just think it's very important. Um, kind of my, the premise of my boards too. The reasons I like this idea of a figure eight, I, I think you probably know about that. I mean, I don't know if you know me at all, but figure eight was a big deal for me. And I think the figure eight is sort of the yin yang of tennis, you know? So I think yeah. it's, I'm not sure if it weighs out on the brain. I imagine it does. But I think it's good to understand that whether you're hitting with your right hand or your left hand, uh, um, you know, it, it's really the same. And you shouldn't look at it that differently because, yeah. uh, and, and I don't know, it just seems to me that the players that can play with their left hand are a little more balanced, period. So I don't know if you, if you like players, your players using their left hand as well, but I kind of like in the beginning of every warmup, we usually either go two hands on both sides, short court, to find that 45, that nice hitting point. So you can't reach and you have to actually swing uh, or we go left-handed. Um, so, I mean, you know, uh, either one, but, but that's how we start. We never start righty. It's either two yeah. hands on both, two hands on both sides, like Borg used to do way back yeah. when he used to do that way back when, or it's left-handed. Uh, and if you're a one-hander, you had to hit a one-handed left hand. Yeah. Um, 
so I, I don't know, but I've always thought that, that there was some correlation between the physical and the mental right there. Sure. No, I think it is as, you know, as the, the brain sends these motor programs to the nervous system. And I think it's all, it's all linked for sure. Uh, I recommend any coaches out there that if you're, you know, a great college player and you're now you're coaching, start to hit left-handed and, and it's going to, it's going to help remind you how difficult it is for beginners. So when you, when you coach more beginners or intermediates, you have a little more compassion that it's, it's not as easy as, as we feel it is because we've been doing it for so long. You know, we've all been doing that kind of stuff. And, uh, Another thing that comes to mind, though, was this is way back in the neck at the old Vic Brayton Tennis College, but we did electromyography where we had these sensors uh -huh. and blood players would hit two-ended backhands with their right hand and the left-hand muscles would be just along for the ride. It would just be dead. Now, pros, the left hand would be That's firing mad, right? Like a Rafael Nadal left-hand dominant. And the right hand would be pretty quiet. Uh, so opposite hands that club players and top players use. That was interesting to me too way back then. I remember that. Do you remember that one video that was going around? You had to find it. It was on an eight track and you had to find it, but it was, it was a video of like Stan Smith and Chris Everett and all those players. And you saw how their motions, like you were saying with those electrodes and you saw that. And I got that, I got a hold of one and I was watching it and, it was a little fluffier back then, you know, the inner game and all that stuff. It was a little fluffy, but it yeah, was still a yeah. good, it was still, they were on their way. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Yours is a lot more scientific. Like I said, it's an easy read, but still it definitely seems a little bit more pertinent, a little more scientific than just, you know, feel and flow out there, you know? Yeah. I, I, I try to combine a little more of the science-based data. I guess that's from all those years at the tennis college where everything was studied. You know, there was always data and collecting data and that kind of thing. So, yeah, uh, God bless, God bless Vic. He really, uh, he was good for the game. That's he yeah, was one of the yeah. reasons. He was one of the reasons that tennis was in its heyday in the mid '70s. I yeah. have to give him. I got to give him and Bud Collins. I mean, these guys, you know, they were kind of good, you know, a little goofy in their time, actually, both of them. But yeah. in, in looking in retrospect, um, you really have to give them a lot of credit because they brought tennis. Tennis was way ahead of golf in the mid 70s. You know, everyone yeah. wanted to be a tennis player and all the celebrities, everybody was doing tennis, you know? Yeah, that's true. huh? You know, we got to do a little shout out to uh, our friend Dick Gould, who has an incredible new book out right now. So people should check that out if they're interested in in the mind and, and coaching and mindset so uh, i recommend that for sure um yeah so anyway there's a lot of good stuff out there now and yep. it's, it's a privilege to still be able to do it after i'm in my 40th year so it, it's a privilege to still be able to do it and to, to enjoy i'm only on the court now with players i would say 20 hours a week yep but i probably do another 10 of just zoom sessions like um real match play video analysis because now of course with the modern technology i could have players from anywhere in the world send me the zoom of the the match and we just like you and i are doing right now we we right. can just go through quantify the data do do oh, yeah. 
And it's in some ways it's better. I do it every, I do it. I have several of zoom students and I, uh, on my site, you'll maybe go through it one day. I have, yep. uh, I have live lessons Sunday. So every Sunday I put in one of my live lessons during the week, I put it on for the other pros to watch, but cool. it's amazing how much you can get done because sure. I love the lessons like yesterday. It's great to be on the court. It's great to hit and do some drills, but you can't do what you can do on, on Zoom calls. I can take a, a good player, UTR 10 or 11 or 12, and yeah. I can compare them side by side with a Djokovic. Or if I'm talking one-handed backhand, I put them against Warenka. You know, if I'm talking two-handed backhand, I can put them against uh, Kyrgios or Murray, you know, one of the two, or Djokovic. I love those two-handed backhands and say, look, don't you see at this point of the stroke, you've lost your coil. Look how they hang on to their coil a little longer than you. That makes a big difference. You can't do that in a private lesson on court, but you can <laughs> on the Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrific. So I, I, I highly recommend coaches out there. If, if you're you know, looking for different ways to maximize the athlete's potential, but also maybe ways for you to get off the court a little bit and save your hips and your knees. Um, start to do match play video analysis with all of your players, try to get them or their parents to videotape one match, you know, where, where it matters, where they're being judged, where, you know, they're really keeping score. And, and you can, you can quantify hardware or software. I mean, you can do all the strokes, sure. you know, primary, secondary strokes. You can, you can break down, you know, high and heavy strokes compared to short angle strokes compared to, open stance or closed stance you can compare swing volleys to drop volleys you can well, yeah uh, you can even look at their psychological disposition is their head down are they tapping the racket on the court all kinds yeah. of stuff it's beautiful and look there's so many things that you can uh i'll go through let me go through a couple things that coaches can do uh in in kind of a video analysis session that that i would do which is more software but um let me go through it because I wrote a couple of things down earlier when I was thinking about this to help coaches, but we can identify uh, the athlete's dialogue, right? And it's the self-coaching. You can tell by, maybe you can't hear it, but you can tell by their eyes and their facial expressions and body language, right? Obviously strokes and movement efficiencies and deficiencies, right? We can, and it's very important in my opinion that visual learning is, is probably the most common. So athletes need to see themselves. A lot of times we as coaches might see the match or for sure parents see it, but guess who doesn't see it? It's right. the person that needs to see it the most, right? Um, anticipatory skills. Um, we would do things like, as you know, we would freeze frame the opponent is continental grip, lunging, vulnerable, about ready to float up a slice and our kids still standing you know, 10 feet behind the baseline, not paying attention. Right, right, right. right. Picking their nose. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so much stuff. And like you said, they're between point rituals and score management. And how, what are they doing with changeovers and charting? I mean, for, for me, a big key with a lot of the coaches listening, you can do something called the cause of error chart. And this is where you and the athlete will identify Maybe here's the four main causes. The error might be stroke mechanics. It might be caused by poor movement or spacing. 
it might be just reckless shot selection or it might be poor emotions and you know that that type of thing but sometimes it, for me it's meaningful to to chart the cause of the errors um i gotta i gotta chart from a parent a while ago a couple of weeks back now the parents said you gotta fix my kid's backhand he made 28 backhand errors and we looked at the film and about 22 were reckless shot selection right and so for me feeding balls or fixing the mechanics right going down the line where they should be thinking cross court sure yeah and so the parent thinks that we're going to fix it by working on form but look what if form wasn't the problem what if it was the recklessness of like you said you're going for drop shots too often or right up the line when they're supposed like to alcarez last night he was driving me nuts in the first early sets <laughs> going for those ridiculous drop shots yeah but anyway, there's so many things. Yeah, no, no, you're right. We could go on and on forever. You know, I will say one thing before I, I do let you go, because I really enjoy this. Like I said, I can't believe I had a feeling we we're going to get on like this. No, I, still can't, I still can't believe we haven't crossed paths, but um, we will from now on. Uh, but one thing I will say, I almost always used the um, video and, and uh, all that stuff for strokes. I'm, I'm really a technician now because I guess I never played the effortless game. I always won ugly in my own opinion. I think a lot of players think that way, but I, and some, you know, some of my, you know, d disciples or fans or whatever, they, Oh no, you play a great game. And I'm like, well, you don't know how I feel. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's why, that's why I love Roger so much. You know, I was like, that's who I want to, I want to play like curious. I want to play like Roger. I want to play like a bird flies. You know what I mean? I don't want to, I don't want to look like I'm trying. I want it to be look natural. Yeah. But I will say one thing about video. A lot of my students, I started to figure it out in the early 2000s, take video of them crying. I'll tell you what, I made my players look at themselves and they were high ranked 12 and unders. And I didn't say a word because I knew. And, and so I just kept videoing in between points, in between, not just stopping at the end of the point. And I would watch them walk back and you'd hear him say, so I can't believe I'm playing like this. God, what does it matter with me? And whining. I tell you what, they watched that video once. I had a couple of kids say, please, Jack, stop. Don't make me watch this anymore. Yeah. Make, and I'll tell you what, you want to cure bad behavior? Let them watch themselves. Yeah. That I, that I do remember. Um, in fact, I even remember on myself in college, I think someone took a video of me and I was think I was whining about something. And I was like, Oh my God, I never want to be seen like that again. I think it's big. It's, it's huge for players to do that. And um, I also recommend for coaches, take your cell phone where the, you have the dictation app and put it in your teaching basket oh, yeah. and record yourself teaching for a lesson. And then when you drive home, listen to your own, to your own lesson and you'll be surprised we think we're so positive not opt optimistic right then we hear the tape and we're like oh my god i have to refund my money to that poor kid i hear you i hear you i do a lot of video and i tell you i've really tempered a lot of things about myself i'm like god you're an asshole you know <laughs> i mean i'm like you gotta stop that jack you really gotta yeah. stop that um 
But very, like I said, Frank, I really, I really enjoyed meeting you today very much. Um, yeah, me too. As, that was, that as was much wonderful. as possible. Hey, you know, uh, I was going to say, if you'd like, uh, we should continue the conversation. If you'd like, I'd, I'd be honored to put your book on. Uh, you know, I get some pretty good traffic, and I'd, I'd, I'd like to put your book on our site and make you a partner because I think what you have is so valuable. Like I said, I didn't have time to read this weekend, and somehow. I read well, 100 pages I, of your book. Well, look, if you want to, to put the Tennis Parent Bible, you can put it on your site just absolutely free for anybody that think they can use it and they can even give it to their parents of their players. And Wow, that's awfully generous of you. I, I wasn't even going to do ask for that, but that's awfully generous. And, and my coaches, listen, uh, the guys that are members of my site uh, – they're real conscientious. They're coaching some of the top players in the country. So my yeah, guess is yeah. they'll, they'll reach out to you eventually because these they're like us, you know, they're not the typical yeah. tennis pro looking at their watch and trying to make their tennis shoes and tennis shorts last another two years. These guys, they, <laughs> you know what I mean? There's certain pros that invest in, yes. their, in their profession. The guys that I work with, every one of them, they're phenomenal. They really invest in what they do and they're watching this right now. So kudos to them. Um, but yes, they, they would, that would be phenomenal if I can do that. Man. Yeah. Do you, uh, well, you have the ebook, so, uh, feel free and I'll do uh, it. Yeah. And, and it's great for, if the, if the coaches realize that if they can educate the parents and get the parents on their side, that's their best sales force. They want to increase the numbers of, of athletes in their academy. It's just word of mouth by parents and if they're helping parents and, and possibly even doing their own webinars once a month where they do their own tennis parent webinars and they're, you know, helping answer questions and get some of the, get some of the parents of the kids that were very successful, have them jump on the webinar and, and they can mentor and uh, it helps everybody. I have a couple of I have a couple of Zoom students in um, in Orange County and L.A. and San Diego right now. I would like to send them to you, uh, not the kids, the parents. Uh, do, you, do you ever do sessions with parents? You know, yeah, just all the time. I did okay. one this morning. I think I told you a, a, a family from Miami. And it's basically the parents. It's It's, you know, yeah. I, yeah. I you know, it said it said it said group between UTR six and UTR eight. You know what I mean? That's that's the it's sort of a pivotal spot right there. Yes. And and it'd be great. And they're, these kids are 14 years old, so they're pretty damn good. You know, if you're a UTR seven and a half at 14, yeah. you're doing pretty good. You're in the top 60 in SoCal, and that's where this kid is. But I think uh, a lot of my students uh, would benefit, and uh, the parents certainly would. But it's both, you know, of course. Yeah. It's a well, win-win yeah. situation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you want to send them over we can chat and then we'll see see what's going on and uh let's stay good. in touch good let's do that hey frank thanks thanks so much and have a great week yeah all right you too bye everybody it's my pleasure so long all right.